Stella made a beat, so it's go time. Welcome back, Grizz Nation, to the Core 4 Podcast. That's right. No revisionist grizzly for this episode. We are back, original Core 4, a podcast under the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network, along with GBB Live and the 3ND Podcast. You can find that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Grizzly Bear Blues is a blog under SB Nation. Find it on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SB and Grizzlies. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and with me is none other than Negative Nate, the Chess Pass. Chester, Nate, what up? Man, how can I be negative right now? Everybody's negative right now. Like, everybody took my brand as soon as the quarantine Wait, hey, hold up. I got a, I got a new one. What are you doing? It's my co-host, Corona Chester. <laughs> Corona Chester, you think I'm... You think I'm a virus in the lives of other people? Is that what you're trying to say to me? Nah, just a alliteration kind alliteration. of there. It didn't make sense, but I'll give you, I'll give you like a seven for the alliteration, right? They probably don't use it again, but it was good for a one-time try for sure. I had to try it. And so um, big news out of tonight as we're recording this podcast, it is Thursday night. I am coming off a stellar victory in the GBB 2K tournament for charity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the Los Angeles Lakers against the Milwaukee Bucks. Shout out to Eric Tweets NBA. And he quit. I was up 19 in the fourth <laughs> quarter. <laughs> but, all right. Hey, Eric, I know you follow me on Twitter, man. I have no idea if you listen to the show. And even if you don't, I may, yeah, may send you a courtesy-friendly tweet tomorrow. How are you going to quit in the middle of the charity 2K tournament? I Like, I was um, beating – the dude I played the other day that I beat, super nice guy, and honestly his name is escaping me off the top of my head. But I was up by 20 in the fourth quarter, and it literally never crossed my mind once – that he might quit the game because I just thought there was an implicit understanding. This is um, you're playing with people that, you know, in a charity tournament. So I kind of thought it was just an implicit understanding that everybody was going to play it through to the end, no matter what happened. But um, obviously some people like our friend, Nate, um, the bad Nate, really, um, I'm the good Nate here, but um, obviously some people felt differently about it. I guess so. I mean, it's been fun. Um, actually, if Nate wins his matchup tomorrow night, we face each other. And had the shot at facing Devin Walker from Grind City Media, Memphis Grizzlies social media guy, for the championship for charity. So that's that's, that's cool. really cool. Um if you and I um, – if I end up defeating my matchup, who I'm playing on Friday, who is – the self-proclaimed young Jewish king, um, his name is Mark Rosenberg, so I thought it was, I mean, it was probably a fair assumption um, to think that he was Jewish, but he also felt the need to declare that he is the young Jewish king in his Twitter bio. So if I am able to overcome the young Jewish king and we are able to face each other 
I honestly think that's worth a recap episode on the core four in and of itself. And I'm talking like a play-by-play recap. I want us to go through the X's and O's to see where you went wrong and I went right and how I ultimately came out with the victory. I mean, yeah. Um, do, do you know who you're going to be yet? No, I have no idea. I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants here. Who were you last time? I was Dallas, and uh, my guy was the Brooklyn Nets, and um, just a bunch of Luka and KP pick and roll over and over again. I understand that. Yeah, I uh, I, I was Brooklyn last time, and then I was the Lakers tonight. You know, it was one of those things where I had just beaten the Lake, the Mavericks by 30 points, and I was like, okay, like, I, I don't want to risk using them and lose. And then also, too, the guy, Eric, who I played, he was Boston last time when he won. Now it's going to be one of my choices. I was thinking Boston. And I was like, okay, well, he knows Boston. He just played with him. And then he said, like, you know, I'm feeling the Bucks. I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm going to just go with the Lakers. Hey, I, you know, sometimes you're just feeling like playing with the absolute best player in 2K, like Giannis Antetokounmpo. So, you know what? I, I respect it. I, I don't respect the end result, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and also uh, I'll give a shout-out to Justin Lewis for organizing this tournament, and I'd also give a shout-out to Brendan Smart for setting up the Twitch. Mm-hmm. It's made a fun experience. I mean, I, I haven't been seeing much of the numbers or anything for Twitch or anything, but the main thing I know is that people are, are donating to good causes. I mean, first round we were donating, taking donations to the Mid-South Food Bank, and then um, second round, we yeah. were taking donations to St. Jude. Mm-hmm. So just yeah. great, it, great it, calls it, all around. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's amazing what different things that you could find, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, to benefit and help out other people. And the fact that we could even use something that's honestly kind of dumb, like 2K, to be able to do that is a remarkable thing in and of itself. So. Uh, just be thankful for all that the Lord has provided and all that we're able to use to help other people during these times. Absolutely. And so, Nate, I just want to get right down to it because in order, I, I was actually thinking about this earlier. I, I mean, during quarantine, I'm almost tempted to go count, but we've recorded a lot of core four episodes. We have. And um, it has to be close to triple digits by now, right? So we were probably so we started back in almost two years ago. Summer of twenty eighteen. Is that right? Yeah. All right. So and we went pretty much throughout that summer doing once per week. And this we were in the midst of heavy draft coverage because you and I were both really into that draft beyond just Jaron Jackson and who the Grizzlies were gonna pick at number four. And um we've had our lulls every now and again. Um you want to do the uh revisionist history over the last month and I've been more than willing to chill on my butt while you do that you know that's good but when you even with a few lulls here and there you're probably right like just um pretty remarkable how far we've come during this period of time absolutely and then I've been doing a lot of portfolio work so it just gets me thinking too like between you and I like we've written a lot of stuff like over the past two three years and with that comes a lot of takes yeah. And so I just want to use this podcast to just go through our biggest hits and misses mm-hmm. as far as the Memphis Grizzlies go. Yeah, brother, I think I looked at my portfolio. Um, what, what's it called? The mud rack is what both you and I use. And I think between 
all the blogging I did at Bill Street Bears before I came to Grizzly Bear Blues and everything that I've done at Grizzly Bear Blues, I want to say it's over 300 articles. Like it may, maybe in the three to 400 range, and that's like over a three-year period. Has to be. I mean, I yeah. remember yeah. just even like months at a time at Bill Street Bears, I was writing 30 times a month for yeah. at least a year. So, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, so – Lots of takes during that time, both good and bad. And I think I already know what you're getting at. You want to talk about our hits and misses during that time. Absolutely. Because, I mean, obviously, like, we've had hits, hits and misses as fan, like, in our Grizz fandom growing up. And also, like, we're young. We're 23 and 22. A lot of our misses are really tied more towards support um, and youthful hope. And optimism. Mm-hmm. So, Nate, I'm going to let you start off. You can start off with a hit. You can start off with a miss. Just Here, I'll start off with tempo. one of each, and we'll, we'll both do a couple of each. But um, one miss that I'll start off with, we got to stay on brand, negative Nate. got to start off with the misses, you know. And I haven't talked about this one yet, but it honestly just now came to mind right as we're thinking about it. O.J. Mayo, before even the really the, the full start of the written grind era. Think, think, well, I mean, think about his pedigree. Think about where he came from. He was the number one high school player in America. He was the best high school player since LeBron James. Um, there's a story of him openly challenging Michael Jordan at age 16 at his camp to a one-on-one game. So top high school player in the country, supposedly the best since LeBron James, has a great freshman season at USC, and then he ends up being the third pick in the draft. And through some trade shenanigans with Kevin Love, he ends up on the Memphis Grizzlies. And his rookie season numbers were better. They were comparable and even better to what Dwayne Wade was as a rookie. So you have all of that in perspective, all of that in mind. And for him, basically, as a rookie, that was the best he ever was. And he just slowly regressed from then. He still became a good upper-tier role player in Dallas and even for a very short period of time in Milwaukee. But to see his career trail out, obviously he had the drug issue that ultimately pushed him out of the league. But even before that, the fact that he didn't even become a star, not even a minor star, not even an all-star, I'm just talking about he didn't even enter the upper, like the lower tier of stardom like Rudy Gay kind of walked into as a member of the Memphis Grizzlies. That was disappointing to me because I thought OJ was going to be a perennial all-star. And most NBA analysts thought so, too. I remember um, hardwood, a hardwood paroxysm, Matt Moore. You go find some of his writings from that time, and he thought OJ Mayo could have been a future MVP. <laughs> I mean, well, for one, I want to consider that either of our misses. Because, I mean, for one, we were preteens when – OJ Mayo was a grizzly, but also too, it wasn't like he he sucked. He didn't suck. Yeah, that's true. That's what, that's what happened. <laughs> you defined by miss, I guess, is what it comes down to. And here's the thing with OJ: it's one of those things that over the course of his grizzly tenure, his pecking, his standing in the pecking order went down. So I mean, yeah. But he uh, wasn't good enough to stay up in the pecking order. There were people who came in who needed more touches. Than I mean. Was that OJ or was that Lionel pushing him out? I mean. Or was it Tony Allen literally punching him out? <laughs> I mean, it, there's a lot of factors to it. You know? I mean, he also pushed himself out too because, like yeah. you said, he had, he had some issues. Yeah, for sure. So, 
Yeah, yeah, and you're right. That's before our time. So we'll, we'll try to keep it to the blogosphere era for both of us from here on out. Um, but one hit that I had, and I think you and I both remember this past draft party, um, basically the little musical dance number that you, I, Connor Dunning, Brandon Abraham, and among a few others had to do as soon as the uh, pick was announced. But when the Grizzlies traded up from 23 to 21 and picked Brandon Clark, man, we danced like no one was watching. I'm we hopped around like no one was watching um, because you and I all know deep down that Brandon Clark is going to be the dude. Now, even I don't think, I don't think I quite expected him to be as impactful as he was as a rookie, but anyone who paid attention to who he was in college had to know that he was going to be an, at least an excellent NBA role player, which is why it's still mind boggling to this day, why he fell all the way to 21. But um, he was one of the most overall efficient and productive college basketball players in the NCAA history, with really only Zion Williamson surpassing him in that regard in the last decade. And NBA teams passed him over because his arms were too short. And he projected questionably as a shooter, which, to be fair, I guess was warranted at the time. But I knew he was going to be good, and he's good. So I'm counting that as a hit. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing a lot of uh, NBA draft Twitter guys super high on Brandon Clark. And I was like, all right, let me see what it's about. And like, I, I, I was seeing what they were seeing as well. And then, I mean, obviously, my excitement at the draft party like portrayed that. I mean, as you said, we were all doing a little dan- musical dance number, but literally, Brandon, Abraham, Connor Dunning, Christian Lewis, and I, we took shots because they got Brandon Clark. Joe Mullinax started a Brandon Clark chant in the middle of the bluff. <laughs> and I think most casual fans didn't understand the magnitude there. Now, now, one guy looked at me and said, why are y'all, like, yelling? I wanted to see her a little. And I'm like, if only you do. <laughs> yeah, and I remember even – I had a poll – around March Madness, and I was like, with this much uncertainty in this draft, why don't you go ahead and take Brandon Clark top five? And you would definitely go back and take him in the top five if you were to go back and do it. Um, I would probably, and this is probably unpopular among Grizzly fans, I'd probably still take R.J. Barrett over him just because of upside and overall potential. Um, Barrett struggled some as a rookie, but I think he'll still end up being a star, so I'd still take him. But um, I mean, after that, after Jai's on and RJ, who are you taking before him? I mean, before him, if you're doing a complete redraft, uh, as far as Hawks go, I still like Hunter there. And I think uh, Clark and Collins were super redundant. Maybe, yeah. I, I would have said probably that Cavaliers pick, instead of picking Garland, they should have just picked – Clark, I mean, a core of a young core of Colin Saxon and Brandon Clark's pretty solid going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah uh, that's a, a great hit. And I'm going to go with another um, four, three, four year college player that, you know, draft guys pegged him for his age and his short arms and his questionable ceiling. You already know. The man. 
the myth, the six-part series. Dylan Brooks. <laughs> if there's yeah. ever anything that could be classified as a hit, if you wrote a six-part series about a dude, that's yours. Like, I thought Dylan Brooks was going to be good, too, so I could technically classify that as my own hit. But, man, that's all you. I'm giving that to you. Yeah, I mean, and so, like I said, I was going through some old stuff. And this was for uh, Revisionist Grizzly Prep. And in the 26, uh, 2017 draft, the Grizzlies didn't have a single draft pick entering draft night. So I decided, you know, like we needed coverage uh, for uh, for reasons. And yep. I was like, all right, guys, I want the Grizzlies to potentially trade in for. Mm-hmm. The two top guys, I actually three top guys I had were Josh Hart, Dylan Brooks, Jordan Bell. Mm-hmm. And I only wrote two profiles on players in that draft, and it was Josh Hart and Dylan Brooks. Yep. So I've been high on Dylan Brooks from literally before he became a Grizzly. Yeah. And um, it was one of those things, too. It's one of those prototypes of players. The three- or four-year college player that won a conference player of the year in a big in a Power 5 conference. I mean, he won Pac-12 player of the year and that was the same year Markel Foltz, Lonzo Ball, and Lori Markinen were all in college yeah. in the Pac-12. I mean, that said something. Yeah. And also, too, like he's a guard with positional versatility. And, I mean, I noticed – and then even then we had like bold prediction stuff where I was like, yeah, Dylan Brooks is going to be a rotation player. And even before the injury to Mike Conley went, Dylan Brooks entered the starting lineup before Mike Conley got hurt. He, and he had 19 points in his NBA debut, and it was actually Tony Allen's first game back as a Grizzly, too. So I just continue to see stuff in him where I'm like, okay, he could become a pretty good player. Um, I My optimistic ceiling was Danny Green. Or not optimistic ceiling, like optimistic – realistic comp like a Danny Green type player with an optimistic ceiling being like a Chris Middleton and he's more than shown that he's like in a very good tier of starting shooting guards you know kind of like the Evan Fournier's Norman Powell's mm-hmm. like that category you know they're not going to be the guy that's the lead option or anything but if you had that guy as your fourth or fifth best player you're in pretty good shape and as we've seen with Dylan Brooks as the Grizzlies fourth or fifth best, probably fifth best player that yeah. this is in good shape. And Brandon Clark should probably be the last example of this, but the stigma in the NBA draft among older established college stars is one that really needs to go away because even before Dylan Brooks, there was Draymond Green, there was Malcolm Brogdon. It was absolutely ridiculous that this continued to happen, that guys like them continued to fall the way that they did. And slight flex here, but I was at um, the uh, National Championship Debate Tournament during my freshman year, and it was in between debate rounds, like flex there. I had to throw that in there. And I was watching March Madness on my laptop in between rounds, and it was Oregon. I think they were playing against Kansas in the Elite Eight, if my memory serves me correctly. And I was watching Dylan Brooks play, and I was already familiar with him to that point. He averaged 17 points a game as a senior. He was the Pac-12 player of the year. And I was just watching him play just this big physical two guard who could score from all three levels of the court. He was demonstrating that against Kansas. And I went and looked him up as soon as that game was over. And honestly, I don't, I think Oregon lost that game. I don't remember, 
but um, most mock draft predictions had him going in the second round, and I just could not figure it out. Like, is it just his age? And generally, that's really what it came down to is just his age um, because you see a guy that fits so seamlessly into what the modern NBA expects out of a two-guard. Everything you could want out of a wing player in the modern NBA, a guy who could shoot the three, a guy who could score from all three levels in the court, and a guy who's established himself into a very good two-way player, a very good defender. And right now, the Grizzlies now have him locked into a team-friendly deal over the next three years. Um, He's a guy that you could look to as one of the building blocks of the culture that you've established. And he's the type of player that was missing from the grit and grind years, the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, A an elite role player, okay? I, I said your magic buzzword, the six-part series magic buzzword. Yeah, yeah. An elite role player who can fill in the gaps of your roster in a way that the grit and grind Grizzlies never had that. Dare I say, if you added Dylan Brooks right now, to pick whatever year out of the grit and grind era that you want, say even 2013, the Grizzlies could have won a championship. That might be a little bit hot takey, a little bit controversial, but he fit the mold of what they needed for so long. And they still need help on the wing here in the next coming years. But he right now is a great fit next to John Morant, and he'd be a great fit next to Tyus Jones if they're able to find um, another incredible shooting guard prospect, whether that's in the NBA draft next year or through a trade for a la Devin Booker or something of that fashion. Something like that. You know, I I can just go on and on. I mean, to put it plain and simple, Dylan Brooks is the best wing the Grizzlies have had since Rudy Gay. And that, that, that you know, that's no longer a terrible thing, to be honest. I mean, because he's, he's good. Yeah, and I think I think you said first said that a couple of months ago, and it seemed uh, pretty controversial. A hot take at the time, it really isn't anymore. Who would you pick? Who would be the next closest candidate? Uh, Courtney no Lee, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely yeah. nobody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, Nate, let's move on to a miss. Okay. All right, so let's just go ahead and get one. We have one common miss in mind, and I think we need to clear the air on this. Just go ahead. Neither you or I thought Jaron Jackson was going to be what he was. Now, you and I both talked ourselves into him on draft night, so we could say we were ultimately right about that. But in the weeks leading up to the draft, I remember arguing with Peter Edmondson. We were covering a pre-draft workout together, and I was talking about Trey Young, who – that's a hit for me. Thank you very much. I knew Trey Young was going to be great. And I was telling him about all about how Trey Young was the right prospect for the Grizzlies, and he would not budge on Jaron Jackson. He basically just told me, just wait. Just wait. I'm like, okay, I don't really see it. Um, he was a guy who wasn't extremely productive in college. Uh, foul trouble reduced his minutes in college. And he just wasn't productive in the same way that on Marvin Bagley, DeAndre Ayton, uh, or a Trey Young or a Luka Doncic were. And it, pro- productivity is something I value a lot. It's the same reason why I liked Brandon Clark, Dylan Brooks, or players of that mold. <sighs> we were wrong. We were absolutely wrong. Nothing mo- much more to say about it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think for me, my miss was more about just yes. almost like an internal formula of like, ceiling versus floor 
I focused on the prospects where there wasn't that much difference between their ceiling and their floor because the Grizzlies had no margin for error with that draft pick at all. I mean, that's why I had Marvin Bagley number one because I'm like, okay, he's not going to suck. At the very worst, he's probably 14 and 10, but he can also be an Amari Stoudemire type big man. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that and the thing with Jaron Jackson Jr., and I think it was, it's less about his talent and just the fact that Tom Enzo didn't use him well. Yeah. Um, and I had him low. I, I, I found a draft board then and I had him eight. And honestly, that's a draft flaw of mine. I mean, I, I remember looking at a mot or a, a big board I made around March Madness last year. I had John Morant six. And that's just because of the PTSD that I had from campaign and Isaiah Cannon, you know? Like you have those guys that are like mid-major guys, and it's just for every Damian Lillard, you get Isaiah Cannon. For every Steph Curry, you get a Cameron Payne. Like mm-hmm. it's one of those things. Like okay, like, but then it it didn't take long for me to actually like. You saw him play. I saw him play FSU, <laughs> and he was an absolute killer. And I'm like, okay, this guy's like. That cool. guy's like the best rookie pros- best rookie point guard of the last 20 years. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, and that wasn't that wasn't even one of those. I just had to watch him actually play. I mean, I wasn't going out of my way to watch Murray State. No disrespect to Murray State, but I mean, I'm a I was a college student and I focused a lot on the NBA, and I didn't really have much time to watch and deep dive in on college basketball. So when I saw that FSU game and saw John Moran had that big dunk or in March Madness when he had that triple-double, I flipped a switch. I had him around like a 2A, B kind of thing because I, I liked R.J. Barrett and yeah. I liked John Morant. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when the Grizzlies came up to second in the lottery. I was kind of torn initially between Barrett and John. I, I was leaning job, but I didn't think it was set in stone and unquestioned um solution that Ja had to be the guy at that time. Now I eventually got to that point over the next coming months after that, but it did take some talking into. But I'm not a big fan um of stat pushing where you'll look up do you remember that um infamous ESPN graphic where it was like the only players to average 13.6 points, 5.4 rebounds, two assists while shooting 44% from the field and, like, averaging 1.4 steals. And it was like LeBron James, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and Thaddeus Young. (laughs) Like, all this deep stat diving they had to do to add him to that graphic. I'm not a fan of something like that, but this one stat in particular, it's not too, there's not a ton of gymnastics that you have to do to come up with it. And it astounds me right now to be, to see where we're at with John Morant. There are three players in NBA history who averaged 17 points and seven assists as a rookie while shooting 49% for the field. John Morant is one. Who are the other two? It's like Magic, Johnson, and Dane? Or Magic, Oscar? Magic and Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. 17 points and six assists, excuse me. But um, there's nothing that I can really say to put into perspective how amazing and incredible he has been as a rookie. And you know, our friend Connor Dunning said it on Twitter during the last dance documentary. I mean, I never want to put the expectation of comparing John Moran to Michael Jordan. Never want to put that expectation on him. But that type of thrill, the poetry in motion, what other parallel is there to draw it to? 
just this wow factor. I've never seen anything like this type factor. Um, you can definitely make a parallel there. Will John Morant ever become Michael Jordan or something even in that tier? Oh, oh in all likelihood, probably not. But it's still amazing to see where the Grizzlies are at. Considering where they were at two to three years ago, like you said, they could not have missed. They could not afford to miss on that pick. And now we're looking up and saying they can't miss. Yeah, absolutely. Nate, let's move on to another hit. Actually, let's do another miss because I don't want to end on a I don't want to end on a miss. You know what? You know, it's like basketball. Yeah, you put it in on a mate. mate. All right, so here's one miss that I have, and I'm still ashamed to say it to this day. I thought Deontay Davis is starting center of the future, man. I bought into – he was so good as a rookie at different times. Um, the flashes of explosiveness and athleticism that he showed in the pick and roll, finishing at the rim, blocking shots. I thought, man, if he adds a consistent mid-range jumper, a consistent three-point shot, there is no reason why he can't be the starting center of the future. Um, what Mark Gasol said about him at the time, that floored me. Mark thought he could hand him the keys of the franchise. I'm thinking, wow, they really found this guy at the very end was the very first pick at the second round where they got him Um, really with the uh, 31st pick they were able to find a guy who could be one of the key building blocks of the next generation of Memphis Grizzlies and the guy just his heart just wasn't in it I guess Um, he just did not seem to have the passion and drive to be a pivotal, real NBA contributor, and he's out of the league now. I think he was playing for the Santa Cruz Warriors earlier this year, the Warriors G League affiliate. Um, To see him fall off so drastically when I thought he was going to be so good, and really the red flag was in the air when he showed up for Summer League the following year after his rookie season, and – to say that he didn't show out would be an understatement of the century. He almost looked like he didn't even belong out there. And but was it that or the uh, – because I thought he was also on summer league after his sophomore season, and that was the one where you're like – Yeah, he doesn't have it anymore. Well, the first red flag was the first, or the first summer league after his rookie season, and then the following year you just knew he didn't have it. That's what it came down to. Yeah, I mean, I actually talked about – we talked about Deontay Davis a lot on our last revisions, Chris Chip Williams and I. It's one of those things with Deontay, like you said, he didn't – his heart wasn't in it, really. But it wasn't unfair – like, it wasn't too far-fetched to say, like, oh, he could be, like, the next franchise starting center because the way the league's turned, it operates off guys that can protect the rim – and then rim run both ends of the court. They don't need the ball to be efficient. Now is what Deontay Davis can do. He can stay in front of guys in the pick and roll. He can block shots. He just relied a lot on finishing around the rim in the inside three feet. Had a little baby hook he was getting. Like mm-hmm. it was one of those things. Like if he developed into like this Clint Capella kind of guy, it wasn't far fetched. But the dude just didn't have the motor. Yeah, he just didn't. And you got it doesn't matter how good or naturally talented you are, if you don't have that motor that drive to succeed. And um, 
I think there's another guy you could point to in the NBA, and I hate to throw him under the bus because he's a super nice guy that I knew back in high school. But Scalabissier, um, I remember Ernie Kuyper at M33 told me he thought he was going to be the number one pick in the draft. And a supremely talented dude, but even now he's hanging on to the end of Portland's roster because just not everybody has this innate motor that it takes to be a high-level contributor in the NBA. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it is a little bit frustrating when you see guys that do have this um, great level of talent that just aren't quite able to put it together for whatever reason. Yeah, I agree. And so that actually leads me to another 2016 draft miss. Probably my biggest one, probably the one I held on to the longest was Wade Baldwin. Yeah, I thought he was going to be good too. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a 6'4 guard. That was a point guard. He's a 43% three-point shooter in college. And you know, and then even in that summer league, he had that poster dunk where, like, oh, I see why they kind of compared him to Westbrook a little bit with like his athleticism. Um, he had that very good all around debut where he had like a seven, six, five, three, and three. And that first game was one of the biggest teases from a guy who didn't stay in the league that I've ever seen. He, he turned the corner. Carl Towns didn't contain him in the pick and roll. I think it was in the second quarter of that game. And he turned the corner and threw it down with one hand at the rim. And I'm like, oh, man, this guy's going to be good. And then something – I mean, yeah. And I, the difference with him and Davis, his more like attitude, just self-perception. Uh, self and I'm, like I said, I'm still going to root for the guy because I was one of the first guys like I wrote about as like a guy that talked to him. So like, I always just like held that to me, but also too, just like he was supposed to be good. I I mean, whatever happened, I mean, I think, I I don't know. I mean, something could have happened with a shot. Yeah. Um, I thought it was straight and complete utter madness that he got cut for Andrew Harrison and then, Mario Chalmers. Mario Chalmers, yeah. Yeah, a year removed from the Achilles tear that he had. And it was also like that would have been a good season for him. Because you imagine just like, granted, I'm not saying he would have gone out and been, you know, like the starting point guard of the future. But like, could you imagine having to, like letting him get those reps when Mike Conley went down? Yeah. Like that, that's what kind of bothered me. And I was kind of, and then he had like some stints in Portland where he was like showing upside of like a lockdown defender. But I mean, with Portland, it was a bad spot because I mean, half the roster is six, four combo guards. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it, well, part of the reason is that the Grizzlies never used him as a two guard, which was his more natural position in the NBA than he was as a pure point guard. And I remember, um, I think it was like the fourth or fifth game of the season. And David Fisdale, for whatever godforsaken reason, decided to have most of his minutes where he was playing against Chris Paul. And, of course, Chris Paul destroyed him. Wade was not very good. It was his fourth game of the season. But even then, I could just tell the man did not have the instincts of a point guard. Like, the point guard is the hardest position there is to learn in the NBA, but he didn't have the basketball IQ needed to play that position on a consistent basis. It was very obvious, and we've heard rumors and whispers that the Grizzlies training staff really messed with his shots. And I think it was you that told me the story that he took like 100 threes in practice and only made like nine of them one time. 
Yeah, yeah. Full full disclosure. Yeah, it was a um, it was a podcast he was on with with Richard or with uh, Evan Turner, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and it just yeah, they, yeah they brought up with the shot and like what happened in Memphis. Yeah, they ruined his shot, and I also think there were certain areas of his game that he was lauded for coming into the pros that he wasn't necessarily as good at as he appeared. For example, his athleticism, he had a lot of vertical explosiveness. You could see that on dunks, but he had slow feet. Um, And I don't even mean just lateral quickness. He couldn't move his feet very quickly when he was dribbling the ball. He didn't have a good first step. Now, once he got to the rim, he could really explode. But there's kind of this misconception that if you're athletic – and what are athletic or explosive in one facet, then you're athletic and explosive in all the facets that there is of athleticism. And that just wasn't the case for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. It's a, I pour one out for him. Mm-hmm. You hate to see it. Hate to see it. But, uh, hey, let's wrap the show up with um, some hits. Just two quick hits from the both of us. So, Nate, what hit do you want to drive us home with? You know, honestly, I was thinking back through the very beginning of the written grind years all the way up till now, and I was trying really hard, Parker, to be positive. I really was. But as it turns out, the Grizzlies did not retain a single first round – or no, not a first round – any draft pick period from 2008 to 2016 past the rookie contract. So trust me, I tried hard to be positive to find some – guy I could latch on to and say, yeah, I knew he was going to be good and he really panned out. <laughs> but the Grizzlies just never could do that with anybody. Right. So, fortunately, I'm going to have to make something negative my final hit. And I'm going to – I don't take pleasure in people falling short, players falling short, whether I like them personally or not. But I beat the drum for two years, man, that Andrew Harrison was not good that he was not good at all. And I had people from Joe Mullinax uh, to other members of Grizz Twitter saying, just give him time. He's young. He's going to figure it out. And there's nothing wrong with giving minutes to young developing players. That's something we both begged Lionel Hollins and Dave Yeager to do. And to see Fisdale attempt to do it was very good. I was glad to see it. But I want to see those minutes given to young players that have upside and have potential. And I'm looking at Andrew Harrison. He can't shoot. His defense is terrible off the ball. He's got extremely slow feet. His instincts aren't great. And I'm thinking, where in all of that is do I see a meaningfully good NBA player coming to fruition? He shot, I believe, 32% um, as a rookie. And I want to say – for the volume of shots that he took, it was one of the worst overall shooting seasons in NBA history for players that took the amount of shots that he did during that season. And it took the Grizzlies two years to finally figure out that the guy just didn't have it. And I don't take pleasure in somebody falling out as far as their NBA career is concerned, but it was maddening to see the Grizzlies continue to invest in a guy as as part of their long-term future who just didn't have it. And I was right about that. I mean, hey, it happens. I think a lot of it, I mean, I don't know if this actually, I mean, a lot of, you know, that optimism could have been drawn to just – he played. He played a big role at Kentucky, and he was a top ten player in the country. I mean, I don't care. I, no, like top ten player in the country come out of high school. I, I don't know about college, but 
I mean, he, you could cover his deficiencies in Kentucky. He played with Devin Booker and Carl Anthony Towns and Willie Colley-Stein and Trey Lyles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. So, um, I'll, I'll close out my hit with – it's kind of an unfair hit to give because he was a very productive player before he came here. That's on Jonas Valanciunas. Yeah. Because a lot of – so there's a lot of flack for a little bit about that Grizzlies. Okay, I'm not just like hearing stuff in my head about the Marcus Gasol trade kind of being criticized a little bit, right? It was criticized, no, right? I think it was pretty universally criticized at the time. I, I think the general narrative was they're doing whatever they have to to convey the pick, and there was more talent on the roster after the trade was done than there was before. So if you wanted to spend the trade positively back at the time, that's how you would have done it. Right, and I think there's also this perception that the Grizzlies were going to get Malik Monk and or a first-round pick from Charlotte when I was like, that's not going to happen. And also, too, you're going to get back significantly worse players, whether it was Bismack Biombo or Michael Kidd Gilchrist or Nick Batum. Like, you were going to get back a bad basketball player. And in that trade, they got three good – they got three pretty decent basketball players – uh, Delon Wright, C.J. Miles, and Jonas Valanciunas. Yeah, and I was excited about Valanciunas. I had seen his stats, but then I, I did like a deeper dive, and I'm like, this dude's literally one of the most productive big men in, in the league. Like his per 36 numbers are monstrous, and I watched some film on him and how he was getting a lot of his buckets, and he was a very brutal post player, and was aggressive coming off rolls. I mean, I. I mean, a lot of the clips I pulled out was him pulling Rudy Gobert, which I know that's a soft spot for you. Dude, all right, so just quick interjection here, just since you brought it up. You texted me yesterday saying if Utah were to trade you Rudy Gobert and all that you had to send back was Jonas Valanciunas, Dylan Brooks, and you give Utah their first-round pick back, would you do it? What did I tell you? Hell no. <laughs> I told you, hell no. But first off, I'm not even sure if I would do JB for Gobert straight up, considering the Grizzly situation. Yeah, I agree. And so, with, I think the thing more about Jonas was the, the next contract. Because, you know, when he came into Memphis in his 19 games, he was about a 20 and 10. And, you yeah. know, people were like, oh, yeah, look at the roster. Look at who's playing with, who else is scoring. And when it's time for that next contract, I'm like, you know, they can keep going as Valanciunas. And there, people were worried about the money. They even thought the 3 and 45 was too much. I'm like, no, that's about what you want to pay for a 15 and 10 guy. Yeah. And he's a 15 and 10 guy. And the Grizzlies are a playoff team. So – it, it was the worst narrative that I saw going around when he was putting up 20 and 10 for the Grizzlies last year, that he was an empty stats type of guy. Because you go back and talk to Toronto fans, think about some of Toronto's most um, painful and humiliating defeats they had to LeBron or otherwise in the playoffs of the last six, seven years. And when Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan struggled, the Raptor fans will tell you that Jonas Valanciunas was often the best player on their team in those series. And exactly. those were the teams that won 50-plus games. Yeah, I heard a lot of, like, good stats, bad team. And 
mm-hmm. I was like, okay, he averaged 14 and 10 in the playoffs with the Raptors, and they were a 57 yeah. win team. Mm-hmm. Not proving your point at all. It, and I wrote, and I wrote about last year about how um, there is value in finding guys who could be considered castoffs in a way who are also very talented. The backbone of the grit and grind era was founded on that through Zach Randolph. And you get a guy, a younger, Jonas is 27 now, right? You get a younger center who is insanely productive, like you were saying, and you're telling me he couldn't be relevant with the next generation of Memphis Grizzlies? Now, I don't know if he'll be here after the three-year contract he signed this past offseason, but he's very good on a very solid and relevant Grizzlies team in the here and now, right now. And in the Marcus Gasol trade, what more could you ask for in return? Yeah. And I'll, I'll just wrap it up with this point. I think it's I think it's just unfair that he gets that bad rap of, you know, that old school center. That people cast him off in similar ways of like Enos Cantor, Greg Monroe, oh, hey. Al Jefferson, when he's a different basketball. Like, He's a very good drop defender. Now, if you ask him to defend stretch fives, that's where you kind of struggle. But you also have Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr. for that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when John Jaron is struggling, he's the guy that goes out and gets buckets. He is literally the anchor behind them attacking the lot, like getting rebounds. And he's a very solid facilitator, both off of screen and dump offs or just finding a cutter out of the high post. I mean, He's a good basketball player, and anybody who was doubting him in the slightest, they just had him messed up. Yeah, for sure. I absolutely agree. Parker, you got anything else, man? That's Unless you do. No, nah, I'm good, man. Plug your stuff. Yes, sir. So you can find me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. Read my work at grizzlyrevolution.com. Uh, tune in next week for some revisionist grizzly. Then we got one, we'll got probably get one or two in. We'll see. But, Nate, plug your stuff in. You can find me on Twitter at NathanChester24. You can find all my Grizzlies-related content at GrizzlyBearBlues.com. And with that, that's it. Bye, folks.